Imagine bold, naturally-aged Tillamook cheddar slices melting over a burger, eating thick-cut cheddar shreds straight from the bag. Ah, it's nice to dream about cheese for a bit. Tillamook cheddar, extraordinary dairy. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This episode of Unspooled is brought to you by Cavo, the one remote to rule them all. The universal remote that takes all of your little, like, wands and things you use to watch films, unites them into a powerful device. I like that you're controlling your TV with your Harry Potter wand. Because, (laughs) by the way, wizards can use their wands. Everyone knows. You go to Ollivander's. You get your special remote control. You're like, I have a Vizio. What wand is good for that? And, you know, they put in the hair of a unicorn. It's a big deal. No big deal. No big deal. No big deal. But what is a big deal is that right now you can get 40 percent off your Cavo. If you go to Cavo, that's C-A-A-V-O.com or Best Buy and use the promo code UNSPOOLED. But you cannot use that promo code at UNSPOOLED. If you just go up to someone and say UNSPOOLED at Best Buy, I'd love that you do that, but they will not give you 40% off. That is only for online at C-A-A-V-O.com, Cavo.com. Use the offer code UNSPOOLED. Best Buy employees listen to our podcast, I hope. But uh, yeah, thank you for doing that viral marketing for us. It's 2018. A divisive year, but these are the 20 films that critics united behind in love. It's the best of 2018, the critics' picks. Hey, I'm Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. And welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. And this is the podcast where we normally watch one film from the AFI's top 100 greatest films of all time. We kind of examine them to see if they really are as good as people say, do they hold up, and how they influence the filmmakers of today. But we're doing something a little bit different. This is episode two in our miniseries. We're examining films of 2018. And we're kind of hypothesizing what films from this year might get on an AFI list in the future. And this week, we are focusing on the top 20 films as determined by Metacritic as the best reviewed films of the year. Last week, Amy, you and I spoke about blockbuster films. And people had opinions about our opinions about these films. Oh, yeah. You can't help but have opinions on blockbuster films. Everybody's seen them. I know. And I feel (laughs) like what I loved about reading everyone's comments was It doesn't matter because everyone has their favorite. I mean, there was one person out there, and I mean it, one person who's like, how dare you ridicule Bohemian Rhapsody? That is my favorite movie. I am not listening until they go back to talking about old movies. And I was like, great. I'm glad that there's one person out there like that. 
I think that's really sweet. And I want to say to you, Bohemian Rhapsody person, stand true to your beliefs. Yes. I am by your side. I'm not saying that the movie's bad. I'm just saying it reminded me of a Lifetime movie. No, you did say that the movie was bad. Sure, but you're okay. not saying that you are 100% correct in all of humankind forevermore. Well, no, I, I, I believe that everyone's taste is to their own, and I'm not saying that your taste is bad. Uh, Mary Poppins Returns, a couple of big fans of that out there. So it was one of their favorite films of the year, which I thought was very interesting. Do you know what? I just love love if you love a movie, I love that you love it. Yeah, me too. I am all in. I am not going to be a person sitting here and judging what you like. But I did want to maybe go back into Black Panther because I think a lot of people were really wrestling with this discussion about, you know, is this the movie that, you know, in a future generation is put on the list? And one of the best points I read about it was that if you looked at the story structure of Star Wars or Raiders – Black Panther fits within that. And is the acting in Black Panther better than Star Wars? Yes. That was kind of the argument. So, uh, Wait, wait, wait. Thought experiment. Mm -hmm. If Black Panther's on the list, would people trade it for Star Wars? Ooh, interesting. Well, I, I mean, because let's get cruel with it. I mean, if we're going to say, like, one, one thing should fill up a slot, another thing that's similar should fill right. up another slot, my argument is always, do we have too many slots? Well, I, I think it goes back to our other point, which someone brought up here, which is, how long do you wait before a film can get on the list? And we won't know Black Panther's cultural impact for years to come because we're still in it right now. I mean, right now, Black Panther took over our culture this year in a way that not many films have done in recent memory, at least the way that my recent memory. So if you were to judge simply by this year, definitely Black Panther, but we just don't know you know, where the culture will move in the next couple of years. It's true. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot, as I have been for, I guess, over a decade now, about, you know, my kind of struggle to like blockbusters. Yes. You know, especially superhero films, which I tend to like. In the moment, I think they're fine. I love to eat popcorn, and then I don't really care that right. they existed. About a, a year to 18 months later, right. they're just evaporated. And I think part of my resistance is really coming from the fact that I'm just sort of bummed out that you have people – like Kugler, for example, right. you know, shows up at Sundance, makes Fruitvale Station when he's really young, and then makes Creed. And instead of launching into kind of the career I think he might have had if he had come of age like in the 60s or 70s and made, you know, films right. that people took seriously, when you have a level of success in this industry now, you get shunted into a superhero film. Like that's kind of your reward. And yeah. I think part of why I'm mad is I just – See, the great minds of our generation, you know, working under the Disney umbrella and doing the best they can in that umbrella, but not doing the visionary films that they could make that might truly shape the culture in ways that we're not expecting. Ooh, Amy, that's good foreshadowing because today we are talking about independent films. But I do think there is a problem when you look at a list of the 20 highest grossing films and 18, and as a lot of people pointed out, really 19 because you can really consider – uh, crazy Rich Asians to be an adaptation, so it's not a, a completely original work, are all sequels and reboots and adaptations. And that is a that is a bummer that there's not enough original uh, content being fed into the mix. And then also above that, most of them are Disney and Marvel, and that's also very big. Exactly. I Disney and Marvel are just taking over the planet, and it terrifies me. And, yeah. And I'm just – I have to say, like, fist on the ground. Can we not let this happen? Well, because you can only make a certain type of movie in that mold, right? Like, I mean, you can have a visionary director like Kugler, like James Gunn, you know – like, like Ryan Johnson. Right, Ryan Johnson. But they have to deliver a movie that is going to be under, you know, 
a PG-13 Max banner. Amy, you want to talk a little bit about Quiet Place? Uh, I think some people felt that we gave that movie a little bit of a short shrift and not kind of dissecting it a little bit more. But uh, Chris Peck at Life Crescribed uh, wrote that he thinks the movie intentionally wants us to think that Krasinski is sexist. I think the daughter convinces herself of that. But we come to realize that, one, she might make too much noise. And two, <laughs> and two Krasinski's character still blames her for his son's death. I think that is an absolutely valid reading. I think what I wish is that A Quiet Place had not just sort of left the dots there, but maybe, like, explored what that would mean. Right. Yeah, I, I feel like that happens a lot in films where they're like, we are doing the work of sort of making up for the things the film doesn't quite say. Or oh, and, and, and not that the film has to spoon feed us things at all. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is if you have an interesting idea like that, a dad quietly mad at his daughter, I wish you'd do something with it. I wish that would become a part of the film or in some sort of a way, have some sort of a, a tearing apart of what that actually means to this family. And instead, it's just sort of a breadcrumb here and a breadcrumb there, and they might go together. Yeah, and I think that goes back to our original comment about Bohemian Rhapsody. People want to connect these breadcrumbs, and then when they connect these breadcrumbs, they're like, this is my movie. I figured it out. And there was a lot of great theories about The Quiet Place and why it's important because it it gives you a sense of fear and anxiety. And, and that's what I was really responding to with the film. Like, I like a, a, a film that when you leave the theater – you felt like, wow, I saw something different. And that's how I felt about, uh, you know, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. I think I felt that way when I saw Black Panther. I I felt that way when I saw Quiet Place. It's like, this just made me feel like this was not a normal movie-going experience. And I think those movies do need to be held up high because that's a huge chance when we're talking about something that is so, you know, cookie-cutter to a certain degree. And it's sort of like, yes, you have to color within these lines. How good can you color within those lines is impressive, but it's still within the lines. It's true. I think one of the things I'm always trying to keep a pulse on as a critic is my craving for something different. Right. You know, because I believe in that very strongly and it's also dangerous. You know, like there's a risk that like whenever any movie comes out that's different, I'm immediately like, you get a full letter grade higher. I don't even care. But then on the other end, I don't always regret that because what I do think extra, extra bums me out about looking at a list of all sequels and reboots and like franchises that have been around since the 70s or if you want to go to the stars, it won't even longer than that is that I worry that we right now in this moment are not really putting a new level on the culture. We're not adding anything to the culture. We're remixing the things that we love about the culture. Right. But I want to see 2018 really take a stand for what we are. And well. I feel like instead we're sort of doing the best within the framework of the past and doing nostalgia fan service to things we love. But I want us to be like future setters and not like past transmogrifiers. No, I think that that's great. And again – perfectly leads us into our conversation today. Amy, let's get into it. Amy, the year is still 2018. Donald Trump is still president. (laughs) Barbara Streisand cloned her dead dog. Doctors were able to grow a new ear and a soldier's arm. The Golden State Killer was arrested after 32 years. A man in Colorado survived a bear attack and a shark attack. And Katy Perry and Taylor Swift made up. What a year. You see, we're we're really <gasps> dipping into some uh, less known facts as we continue to talk about 2018. Um, what a year for independent film, Amy. You know what's so funny, Paul, is you keep saying independent film. And we're not talking about independent film necessarily. We're talking about oh, the best right. reviewed film. Oh, my gosh. I should, and, and, I should and, take this and, all back. No, don't we? take it all back. Right. Because what I think is so interesting about what we're saying is it's almost kind of speaking to the divide we have between, like, 
blockbuster filmmaking in 2018 and the critically reviewed films of 2018, the films yes. that critics love, as though they're two separate things. Yeah, I think a lot of the times I view like the film landscape as two separate entities. There are the art house movies and the blockbuster movies. And the art house movies are the ones that every critic is like, you have to go see. And the blockbuster ones are the ones that all your friends tell you to go see. So yeah, I, I think I just put them over there because I also have seen the list. And I would say 95% of the movies on this list are considered indie films. And uh, we're taking this list from Metacritic. These are the top 20 best-reviewed American films. Uh, so there's no Roma on this list. So if you're wondering where that is, it's not an American film, uh, even though it's on Netflix. Uh, but let's go we through We also it. took off some other really good films that I just want to say really fast. Go yeah. watch them. Go watch oh, yeah. Burning. Burning is incredible. It's a really twisted kind of love triangle, awesome noir. Go watch Shoplifters. That's a Japanese film that's nominated for Best Foreign Language Film. So is Cold War. It's a beautiful period romance. That's on the list too. And Zama, which is just a very nutso period film that – I, I don't even know what to make of it. I watched Ooh. part of I watched part of it. I actually only got halfway through. Not for any real dark reason. I just had to go. Um, <laughs> but I was really glad I saw what I saw of it, and I need to finish watching it. Well, all right. So these are the top 20 best-reviewed American films. And there are some overlap between uh, the blockbusters on here. But let's start at the bottom and go to the top. We're starting at the bottom with Mandy. Uh, the Nicolas Cage film, Mandy. We'll get into that in a little bit. And then we go right to Mission Impossible 6, Fallout. Yeah, yeah, Chris McQuarrie. Um, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Melissa McCarthy uh, film with uh, Richard E. Grant, which is just superbly directed by uh, Mariel Heller. Then we go into the uh, Coen Brothers' newest film, which is The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Kind of a different film for them, little uh, like little vignettes, really. I uh, think there's no such thing as a non-different Coen Brothers you're, film. You're totally right. Uh, <laughs> one of my favorites of the year, Paddington 2, uh, a great movie that I have a very hot take on. I cannot wait to share with you. Uh, then Widows. I'll be honest and say I did not see Widows. Uh, this movie was directed by... Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen. Uh, did you see Widows? I did see Widows. I saw the AFI premiere of Widows when they did it at the film festival And people here. say it's a, a really powerful noir picture. People want it to be a really powerful noir okay. picture. I didn't think it quite made it there. Okay. And then we go into, I know, one of your favorite films of the year. Sorry to bother you. Yes. Boots Riley. In the world of inventive films, this movie really stood out for me as being something that Again, I left the theater going, whoa, what did I just see here? It just felt really different and young and exciting. Yeah, it was one of the first films I saw in 2018 at last year's Sundance, and it just set a bar that pretty much didn't get bested by anybody else all year. <laughs> then another one of Amy's favorites, uh, A Star is Born. Just sing it, why don't you? Uh, Amy, I will not sing until we do next week's episode where I will sing you all the songs from the best pictures here. That's what I'm going to be doing next week. Ooh, I'm going to hold you to that? No, no, please. No. <laughs> um, and then uh, a film called The Writer. Uh, which also I have not seen. The writer is terrific. It actually has had so much love in the critical like underbelly. It's a it's a film by Chloe Zhao. She's a filmmaker from China about a, a horseback rider named Brady Brady Jandro. He lives in the Black Hills of South Dakota, and it's kind of a truish fictional story based on him in an accident where he got really really hurt and had to get a bunch of stitches in his skull. Ooh. It's awesome. His sister plays his sister. His dad plays his dad. It's a whole thing. Oh, I gotta watch it. Uh, then we go back to familiar territory once again. Spider Man into the Spider Verse. Uh, now we're in the top 10. These are the top 10 best reviewed films of the year. Uh, you were never really here. This is a movie that we've referenced on the show a few times, uh, before today. And this is just a great, 
performance. And uh, I mean, I love uh, Lynn Ramsey. I love her movies. They are movies that, again, make me feel anxious and uncomfortable, and they feel very challenging to me. And that movie really made an impact on me. I I, I love that film. I'm always here for Joaquin Phoenix. Just like, oh, bring it on. He is fantastic. He gives me hope that that Joker movie is going to be next level. I have no hope. Sorry. <laughs> uh, and then another movie that I recommend that you should watch uh, if you had not seen it yet, which is Annihilation. Um, Annihilation uh, is from the same director that made Ex Machina, Alex Garland. Uh, it stars Natalie Portman. And it's this wonderful sci-fi film. I think it's a metaphor for depression. Uh, I will maybe talk a little bit about that with you as we get uh, back to it. Oh, metaphor, huh? Yeah. Uh, Then there was Leave No Trace. Um, Talk to me about Leave No Trace. Yeah, uh, Leave No Trace is a film by Deborah Granick. She did Winter's Bone a few years ago, the movie that made Jennifer Lawrence a star. And here she kind of does it again with a young actress from Australia named uh, Thomas and Mackenzie, who plays a girl who's growing up in the woods with her dad, who's played by Ben Foster. He's a veteran um, he does not talk about what happened to him in the war, but whatever it is, it was bad enough that he wants to live out in the wilderness with his with his girl, teaching her. And it's about what happens when the authorities realize, like, this girl should not be living out here, or should she? It's really, it's really a quiet, lovely film. It's absolutely lovely. Then we go to a Spike Lee joint, uh, Black Klansman, in which he partnered up with Jordan Peele, tell his true story about a cop who went undercover in, uh, in the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, and then... This film, another disturbing, uh, shocking film, Hereditary, uh, Tony Collette. I mean, that movie fucked me up <laughs> hard. Watched it on a plane, really. Whoo, you got movie, scared on a plane? Not scared. Fucked me up. Like, just as like, no, thank you. Like, emotionally, not a, not a good place for me after. That movie, not, liked it. We'll recommend it. It fucked me up. <laughs> um, then uh, going back to Black Panther, number five on the list. Black Panther, pretty high up in one of the best-reviewed films of the year. And then we go uh, to Barry Jenkins' If Beale Street Could Talk, um, which I think arguably is one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. It's like, gorgeous. Like, to look at, it's every frame is a painting. I, I just was staring at it going like, wow, wow. It just – it. It looks unlike anything. Um, Eighth grade, Bo Burnham, who uh, you might know from his previous success as uh, a YouTube star and then as a comedian, makes this movie that we talked about on this show a lot. It's just a beautiful coming-of-age story. It's been done so many times, a coming-of-age story, and he manages to find a unique perspective on something. It made it feel fresh and new all over again. Uh, and he's been getting a lot of acclaim this year. Uh, the favorite, one of my favorite films of the year. Uh, oh, I love it. Uh, how do you pronounce his name? Yorgos? Yorgos oh. Lanthimos. I mean, every one of his films uh, are earmarked for me as just being, again, a film that feels different and weird. The favorite is probably the most mainstream of all of his films that I've seen. Yeah, uh, for sure. There's no incest. No, and there's is also... Is there incest? Wait, now I have to run in my head. No, there is no incest. There is no incest. But there is also, it's a, as far as like a storytelling is concerned, it's a very simple story with his own spin on it. It's it's an, It was surprising to see him take that on. And then ending at number one, the best-reviewed film of the year, First Reformed, with uh, Ethan Hawke 
And this is uh, directed and written by Paul Schrader uh, from Taxi Driver fame. And wow, this movie, uh, I am excited to talk to you about it. Well, let's get into all of it. I mean, where do you even want to start? These are 20 films. This is a lot. I, I mean, mean, yeah. Like, where should we start? I mean, because what we were talking about last week as part of our framework for the Blockbuster episode was like, what are the films that have had an impact on popular culture? What are the films that really represent now? What are the films that have something to say? And, you know, those are questions that are sort of harder and easier to to ask when it comes to looking at, like, the the smaller critically acclaimed films of the year because – it's harder for them to have a massive impact on the culture, but it's better for them to represent the culture in a way. Yes. And it's better for them to tell really specific stories. Well, let's just say that we're not going to talk about any of the movies that we talked about last week in the context of this episode because we we have already discussed them. But maybe let's talk about a movie that bridges that gap kind of between the critical darling and the box office darling and maybe start talking about Paddington 2. Okay, we can start with Paddington 2. <laughs> Here's a little song help you get along gets you out the door to do a tiny chore Paddington 2 is a wonderful movie it is like, a joy bomb i love a movie that like basically every detail everything that's used comes back and in a fulfilling beautiful way and here's my hot take on Paddington okay, 2 okay go on it is our generations it's a wonderful life what? It is our generation's It's a Wonderful Life. Think about it. Paddington is George Bailey. He keeps this little block together in London. Everyone loves him. And then he is framed for a crime that he did not commit, stealing that book. Okay? And then he is put in jail. And the bear brings happiness to everyone. He invigorates the town. And at the end of the day, literally all of London joins together to save Paddington. It's, it, it is... It is the tale of It's a Wonderful Life told through a bear living in London. Ben Whitshaw is amazing. I mean, the way that he conveys the emotion in Paddington, the movie made me cry. Hugh Grant should have gotten nominated for an Oscar last year and should have won it because that performance as a bad guy is perfection. He got it's a BAFTA. It's perfection. We, uh, we recognize it for the LA Film Critics. He didn't win number one, but I think he was number two. I mean, it's big. It's goofy. I was watching it with my kids, and there's... Every other scene is a big set piece. And it's a great way of showing that you can make a smart, intelligent kids film. And it doesn't have to just be a Pixar film. Because I feel like Pixar kind of has that that realm taken over. You know, this is a very much a kids film. You know, what's interesting is like Paddington 2, you're right. It does kind of take that arc. But it adds this very like 2018 wrinkle in that it's also a story about immigration. You know, and it's a story right. about people judging you for being the wrong color or for the wrong fur, I suppose, or for being from the wrong country, you know, <laughs> and how quick people are to turn on somebody who's, like, different and other. You know, at least George Bailey, he was a part of his community. Right. But this Paddington is, like, aware, shockingly, really interestingly aware of of outsiderness. Yeah. And I found that, like, so compelling because it, it's not a film where you had to do that at all. You didn't have to add that element in. You didn't have to put that ingredient in the marmalade. No, I, I love that you're talking about the marmalade. Yeah, no, and I, I think— I love marmalade so much. It's really uh, a really top-notch film. Uh, I might even say Sally Hawkins is as good in Paddington 2 as she is in The Shape of Water. I, I Look, I'm all in. She's been—like, across the board, you cannot find a bad performance here. I guess why I wanted to talk about this one first is because— I would like to have seen this in the top 20 biggest blockbusters because there's no reason that it shouldn't be. Uh, it's got every element that 
uh, makes this film, you know, it's a family film. It has a big concept. It's a sequel. Uh, but I don't know. It's it's interesting why this film didn't, you know, just become a juggernaut. And maybe because Paddington is more of a, a UK-based entity. You know, uh, I had a Paddington bear growing up. Oh, did you? I did, yeah. But I, mean, I don't know. But now I have to be like the cynical person. Yeah. Now I have to be like the lemon in the squeeze of tea and be like, there's no way a film with a two would ever get it on, on a list. Well, what about Godfather 2? Okay, but then we'd have to get Paddington in first. We'd have to like retrograde <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, it is sad that we live in a world of such cynicism. And I am cynicism. I am cynicism bear. No, but I don't think <laughs> I don't think that Paddington probably belongs in the best films of all time. But I definitely feel like it's a notable film of 2018. And in a year where there aren't many family films, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's the best family film of the year. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see it set a tone. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. As As like, you can be funny and nice. You know, I, I feel like we have kind of shifted away a little bit from the kids' movies of like, I trip you and mm-hmm. I'm rude and totally crude and cool. Like, I, I, not that like that's all of a sudden bad. I think I just get bored of anything that goes on for too long. No, I just think that there's so few instances of joy and this movie is joyful. It's saying something. It's emotional. And I just want to call attention to that. I think it's such a hard thing to do to make a really wonderful family film in this day and age. Unsaddle my pony She'll be itching to roam I'll be halfway to heaven Under horsepower of my own Well then let's go from Joy to maybe the most depressing film on the list Mm -hmm. which I would say is The Ballad of Buster Scruggs Whoa, wait, that's your most depressing on this list? Oh my god, it's so depressing Really? Amy What else is Mike as depressing? Pretty much every other film on here, First Reformed, Hereditary, uh, You Were Never Really Here, Annihilation, uh, like uh, Only a couple Mandy. people die in some of those. Like, everybody dies in Buster Scruggs. Buster Scruggs is a movie about how, like, humanity is a pox on the planet. We shoot each other for no reason. We dig holes up in nature and ruin everything. We're killing each other by accident, and we're killing ourselves because we panic. I mean, it's a movie where we're, like, hanging people all the time. I mean, it is a dark movie where, like, the purpose of human existence in The Ballad of Buster Scruggs is that us pestilence basically, like, came across the the Great Great Plains and then just ruined America forevermore. Wow. I mean, there's this DNA in the film of, like, we just fucked it all up, but here's where we did it. All right, let me say this before I get ripped apart online. I love the Coen brothers. This movie felt to me like all the ideas they came up with during the making of True Grit that they couldn't get into True Grit. It just sort of is, like, it's a bunch of, like, wonderful fun Western vignettes. I love them all. I don't know if this movie felt like a film to me. It felt like these little pieces, like maybe Robert Altman's shortcuts or something, but even less uh, tied together. Right, because you know? they don't really intersect. I mean, they're taking place in almost different Westerns. Like yeah. the Tim Blake Nelson, like piped 70 or maybe 40s style, like yeah. shirt is a totally different Western dude than when, like, Liam Liam Neeson Neeson, shows up in a coat that, like, I actually recently had to interview the costume designer that was made out of all of these Ikea throw rugs. Oh, wow. Yeah, that she had to, like, dye and stitch together, and then she rubbed, like, hair grease into them so it would look like a gross coat. She wanted the coat to show the desperation of a man who would, like, spoiler alert, go around the country with a legless, armless performer and then maybe give him over for a a chicken who can do math. When you say it's dark, the reason why I reacted so 
aggressively to that is because I thought this movie was very funny. I mean, there were fun sequences to watch. I mean, Stephen Root doing that uh, sequence with James Franco, you know, the bank robber in that small little bank in the middle of nowhere. He's covered in pots. Oh. (laughs) shot! It's amazing. I mean, the visuals in this movie, like, they're in top form always. I just kind of felt like it lacked the completion of what I love in a Coen Brothers movie. I, I mean, I I know that they said they didn't like doing TV, and you can kind of sense that this movie was a weird bastardization. Because at one point it was like, the Coen Brothers are making a TV show. And then it was like, no, the Coen Brothers are making one film that's a bunch of shorts but it felt like maybe at one point those shorts were all going to be shows it it just feels like they tried to do something and at the end they're like you know what no we're just going to put this here and this is the framing device this old west book um yeah i mean if we don't have like fargo on the list or some of my coen brothers movies that i think i like even a little bit more than fargo that there's no argument for for this one the sort of like a riff it's just sort of a common yeah. riff they kind of walked into like an old saloon and played a couple notes on a piano and we were like that was great yeah and then they left well let's talk about someone making a riff on something that's in pop culture and i want to jump to mandy okay right. so mandy to me this film feels like a book that you would find at the library, like a Richard Bachman book. It has it has this kind of like heavy metal, you know, ethereal thing going on. The movie is absolutely bananas. I mean, if I was to break it down for you, I mean, basically you got Nick Cage, who is this guy who's cutting down trees, potentially in the Pacific Northwest, goes home to his wife. This weird cult is in town. They decide to do like a home invasion. I mean, the premise of this movie is so crazy. I don't even want to get into it because it's it will take the joy out of it. All I will say is I believe that Panos Cosmatos, the director, understands what Nicolas Cage is capable of and plays into it in a way that shows you can still take what he's doing and put art to it. Like, the scene, and I want to play it right now, the scene where Nicolas Cage is tending to his wounds after his wife has been burned alive in front of him. Just listen to what he does here. Amy, what Nicolas Cage does there, and yes, it is funny, but he's eliciting so many emotions through just primal screams. And that's what this movie feels like, a primal scream. You know, we're not even to the point where he, you know, drinks bad LSD and goes out with a a chainsaw. I mean, this is Nicolas Cage by way of Evil Dead. I've never seen anything like it, but... I was like, yes, what an amazing way to capture everything that culturally we love about Nick Cage and then present something that is so artful and so trippy. It is one of, I mean, next to Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, one of the most trippy films I've seen. I mean, it really 
deserves to be seen on the big screen or at least in your house with all the lights off so you can really just see these beautiful effects. I, I just – I have a, a soft spot in my heart for Mandy. I mean what I think is interesting about Mandy as well is like it's kind of this signpost of almost what we were talking about at the beginning, how we have this like distinction right now in 28 between like – blockbusters in critically reviewed films, you know, mm-hmm. that people adore. Because you know, a lot of the films that we don't have anymore are the films from the 80s that made people like Nicolas Cage superstars. Yeah. Where they were like mid-budget studio films, got some weight behind them, you know, took a good swing, got to at least third base on like the critics and the box office, did a good job. We're just solid pictures, you know, yeah. like it's a solid picture. And what I find fascinating is like looking at the movie stars of that period, Cage, Tom Cruise, Bruce Willis. And seeing how they're all dealing with the modern era in totally different ways. I mean, what I'm thinking of in particular is, you know, Tom Cruise has decided to play, like, bigger and bigger. To stop right. doing any sort of, like, acting, quote-unquote, movies and do, like, huge blockbusters, go for that audience. Like, go big or go home, you know? Whereas Nicolas Cage is doing this kind of kind of riffing thing where he's using his clout to get smaller, stranger, interesting movies made. I mean, the film, the company that made Mandy, SpectreVision, they do really interesting stuff. It's Elijah yeah. Wood's company. Yeah. And, you know, he's working in the system to do the films he finds kind of fascinating for not that much money. I mean, I think the budget of Mandy was probably the catering of Mission Impossible. Well, I mean, when I worked with Nicolas Cage on this movie called Army of One, what I was kind of blown away by was his passion for these parts. He is not collecting a paycheck. He finds something to connect to in each one of these characters and is performing it in a way that he feels is appropriate. He's an incredibly thoughtful performer. And I'm so happy that whatever he does, he is fully committing to interesting directors and interesting parts. When we played our shooting, we were like children posing playing out games acting out names but speaking of someone who is a giant star who is making smaller films and bigger films simultaneously Melissa McCarthy and you have her coming in on this list at 13 with her film Can You Ever Forgive Me directed by uh, Mariel Heller uh, written by Nicole Hofcenter who I love love she's amazing and here's somebody who doesn't need to be you know, making a, a movie on the budget of the Mission Impossible Craft Service uh, budget. And I was blown away by that performance. I loved her in that movie. It's such a fun movie. I mean, for people who haven't seen it, Can You Ever Forgive Me? It's based on the true story of a woman named Lee Israel, a very talented writer who never quite got it together to do her own writing. Instead, she made money forging her ability to write in everybody's style, like Dorothy Parker's style. Right. Write these handwritten letters being like, oh, this happened. And then aging them in her oven and then selling them for money. She sold 400 letters before she was kind of caught by the FBI for being a forgery artist. And it's such a weird thing to forge. like Because it shows that you're a good writer. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I know Richard uh, E. Grant has been uh, getting a lot of acclaim for his role. And he's, and he's terrifically fantastic. fun. He's so fun. He just shows up and he's the sort of older type of man who's been living in New York too long, beautiful blue eyes, you know, expects that the entire bar will collapse to their knees when they see him and hasn't quite realized he doesn't hold the charismatic power he used to. Then there's like a, a yeah. kind of sadness to it, but he's also dangerous. He's also selfish. He's also a person you can't trust with anything. Last time I saw you, thank you. We were both pleasantly pissed at some horrible book party. Am I right? It's slowly flooding back to me. You're friends with um, Julia Steinberg? Yeah. 
She's not an agent anymore. She died. She did? Jesus, that's young. Maybe she didn't die. Maybe she just moved back to the suburbs. I was confused there too. No, that's right. She got married and had twins. Better to have died. Indeed. Like, it's a fantastic performance. He's probably my favorite in the Best Supporting Actor category oh, that we've he, got right now for the Oscars. He's amazing. And I will just say uh, one thing. If you like him in this film, if you're not familiar with his work, go seek out With Nail and I, <laughs> which is just a uh, – what a wonderful film that I found later in life. And it's a film that just is just great. Just go out and enjoy that. What I want to say about Meryl Heller as a director is I think between these two films, her first film, uh, Diary of a Teenage Girl, and this, she manages to capture people I've never really seen in film before, but that are so relatable. Like, like Lee Israel is not like an out-of-this-world character, but she shows the complexity of that character in a way that, I don't know, it, it's just a very deft hand at creating a really rich character. Yeah, which is what I like about Melissa McCarthy when she gets to do roles like this. Because Melissa McCarthy, I think it's abused sometimes in films where she's, like, hit by cars. Mm-hmm. You know, she's sort of this, like, larger-than-life comedian girl who... The female Chris Farley, if you were to be the worst way of describing her. But that's, I think, how people view Exactly. It. And she does those parts really, really well. But she also gets treated as sort of not human in those films and i think it's i think it's always a, a betrayal when even like the larger than life comedian doesn't quite get to register as a as yeah. a person she gets to be a punching bag sometimes well, i find her so fascinating in that she makes you care about her when she gets any sort of opportunity while think, never making you like her it's like this pull of yeah i agree i feel like she creates these characters that you don't necessarily want to be around but you're endeared to and i and she did that in and bridesmaids as well but this is a great film that reminds me of the power of like a great indie. It's, it, it tells a story that has a real strong point of view. The way it looks feels so 90s New York. It feels like you're almost in the real version of what Seinfeld was a little bit. Like it just, it captures New York at a very interesting time. I mean, I feel like if we're looking for modern relevance, you can't really do a film about the people in our major cities without talking about how hard it is for normal people to be living in our major cities. Yes. And you see that actually in Can You Ever Forgive Me? You know, New York hasn't completely changed the way that it is now where like Manhattan is like gutted by, you know, foreign investments that buy apartment buildings and don't show up and don't live there and the city is just all Dwayne Reeds. But you see the start of it almost. You see how like the weirdos like her are barely hanging on by their fingertips and now they're not hanging on at all. Yeah. Um, if we're going to talk about, like, actresses who are amazing, can we talk about Widows, which is, like, so many amazing yes. actresses? Tell me service. about Widows. Okay, so Widows is about a group of women. It opens with all of their husbands dying in a heist that goes terribly wrong. Viola Davis, she's married to Liam Neeson, and she decides that she has to get some of this money back for herself to take care of everything because people are coming after her, too. So she tries to gather the Widows together, even, even though they're not, like, friends. They don't have casserole parties or anything like right. that. Um, in this film, you know, is Steve McQueen saying a lot within a genre film, which I don't think Steve McQueen always does so well. You know, like Steve McQueen is a British director who I feel like always makes these films about America where he's like pronouncing things about us that kind of feel like you read a term paper about America. That's how I felt about three billboards last year. I was like, Mm -hmm. this is a movie about middle America written by someone who has not been in middle America. Like it, it felt like caricatures 
of what you would assume that would be. Widows has a scene where um, Viola Davis's son is pulled over by the cops and it's police brutality. And it feels like him just being like, this is what you are without him really making a movie that lives in the moment. It's just sort of a checklist to me, yeah. which is strange. All of that said, oh my God, I fell in love with some of the supporting actresses in here. Um, Elizabeth Debicki is just incredible. She's this woman who is, I think, going to become a huge breakout star, I hope. She's gigantic. I think she's over six feet tall. She makes the sort of comic work of her body in the film where she's the bimbo-y or seen as the bimbo-y wife, you know, the kind of trophy right. wife who teeters into rooms and like spandex dresses kind of to get what she wants. And she's amazing in it. She's hilarious. I just saw this movie and fell in love with her. She was also in a film called The Tale that came out earlier this year playing a really different right. character. Right, okay, yeah. She's just fantastic. So thank you, Widows, for that. And thank you, Widows, for bringing forward Cynthia Erivo. She's another one of the Widows. Let me just say the name Cynthia Erivo very, 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 very clearly, because I think she's almost at risk of winning an EGOT before anybody knows who she is. She's already got the E and the G and the T because she was the lead in The Color Purple, which won an E and a, and a G oh, and yes. a T. Okay. And she's probably going to get an Oscar sooner rather than later. She's playing Harriet Tubman later on this year. Oh, my. Wait. And so she was also in Bad Times at El Royale. And she's amazing in I that didn't movie. know who she was. I just assumed that she was a singer they cast because her role is kind of revolving around yeah. the singer. And she sings and she's terrific. Yeah, she's amazing. And she gives a brilliant performance. I did not realize this is the same person. Yeah, she's really just brand new on the scene. She's just started really making movies. And oh my God, she has this like charisma and power in both Widows and Bad Times at the El Royale. She to me is probably the most exciting face I've discovered this year. Like yeah. when I say discovered, I just mean me seeing her for the first time. I'm sure there's people like, where were you? You didn't see her before? Ah, no, I want to see her in everything now. So bless you, Widows, for that. Bless you, Widows, for these two performances, which are just incredible. Bless you also for including Brian Tyree Henry, who's like, I think, the like also like just rising superstar of all the move all of the Popping movies. Popping up year. and everything in child's play, upcoming child's ah, play. Can't wait. I was flying back from Amon Jordan and mm -hmm. I watched the entire second season of Atlanta. And oh, yeah. I'm like just obsessed with Brian Tyree Henry. No, so he's fantastic. I mean, the barber shop episode of that oh, season, God. he's fantastic in that. He's he gives a, a beautifully nuanced, again, a performance that feels so relatable, but that you've never really seen before. You know, Paul, part of why I think our podcast works so well from from my point of view mm -hmm. is that we make a good team. You yes. know, like I believe that for things to work well in the workplace, you got to have the right team. I agree, Amy. But how do you find that person that makes your team work? Because when your team works, your dream works. Well, I have an idea, Paul. Yes. Did you know that right now, 70%, 7, 0%. Get the fuck out of here. 70%. I'm not getting the fuck out of here. I'm, you're stuck I don't even with me. Know, I don't you're even stuck know. with me. You're I don't even know what it is, but 70% <laughs> seems huge to me. Well, it is 70% of the U.S. workforce, and it is on LinkedIn right what? now. What? 70% That's everybody. Does anything have that kind of reach? Everybody's quitting Facebook. They're all on LinkedIn. That's right. And you know what? Most LinkedIn members don't, don't even visit the top job boards, okay? But 9 out of 10 members are open to new opportunities. And here's the thing. People who are going to want to work for you that are qualified for your role and ready for something new. It's the best way to find a person to help you grow your business and why a new hire is made every 10 seconds using LinkedIn. Think about that. That's why we get all these emails saying, so-and-so's on LinkedIn, would you like to join them? Because everyone's on it. Okay, so here's the deal. When you want to find the right person for the right job, somebody who is not 
thirsting for the job, but open to a job. LinkedIn is the way to go because that's what you want. You don't want someone thirsting for you. You want to have a little bit of a, a game. You want them to be wooed by you. You want the best of the best. When you're thirsting out there on the job boards, we see you. We don't like you. All right. We want to go up to you at the job bar and be like, hey, what's up? Oh, you give me a little bit of the cold shoulder? Cool, that's cool. Makes me more interested. Anyway, hurry to linkedin.com slash unspool to get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash unspool to get $50 off your first job post. LinkedIn.com slash unspooled terms and conditions apply. Okay, if you listen to unspooled, I bet you do a lot of this. You get cozy, you're about to watch a movie, watch along with us see what we're talking about right now. You get into your living room and I oh, have like 80,000 remotes and you're lifting up all the pillows and oh my God, what do I do? How am I going to turn this on? How am I going to get this movie delivered to my eyeballs easier and faster? And you know what? The Cavo. Because what is magical about the Cavo remote, not only are you not really hitting buttons if you don't want to, you can talk to the remote. That's you can talk to your so remote. good. Believe you me. can say like, hey, remote. Remote, I would really, really, really love to watch The Favorite. And you know what? The remote's going to be like, here you go. You could also even say in the remote, hey, remote, what films from the AFI Top 100 list are playing right now on my TV? And I bet you they could find it. I know they can. I know if you say, give me Adam Sandler movies, it pops up. So maybe AFI movies, it would pop up there too. I bet you They both start with A. They both start with A. And they're both cinematic as touchstones. (laughs) I mean, what's awesome about the Cavo is it connects to everything. We're talking like your streamer, your sound system, your cable, your satellite, your game console. It is a magical device. Here's the thing. Get rid of remotes. Get a clean Mary Kondo lifestyle in your remote control room. All right, one remote to control them all, just like Gollum with the ring, but different. Although I did hear that ring could control your PlayStation and also your Sonos. Anyway, uh, I love my Cavo. It's so easy to set up. I think that's the thing that used to be so daunting about these things. You had to pull out a manual and have a million codes and things like that. No, no, no. It's easy. It's simple. And we're going to give you 40% off the control center with the promo code unspooled. You get 40% off. This thing is normally like 100 bucks. It's like uh, $59.95. $59.95. That's a great deal. Amy, is it a great deal? That's a great deal. That's 40%. 40. 40. 40. Zero. We've only done 40% of the AFI list so far. Exactly. And we've so- been doing this forever, so that's a big <laughs> chunk. Control center is available at cavo.com. That's C-A-A-V-O.com and at Best Buy. Uh, Control Center by Cavo, one remote that does it all. Well, so far, I mean, we're looking at this list. It's it's got diversity. It's got very unique voices telling familiar stories in different ways, doing different takes on genre. You know, I think none of them feel like they are indicative of the best films of all time. But I think what they are feeling are incredibly different telling these stories that aren't being told and and where does that kind of fall in are we saying that even the afi list by definition isn't representative of filmmaking because how much does a film have to transcend to get on this list because it's got to be in popular culture on some level like right because we're wrestling with that idea of like universally important which usually means blockbuster or it's meant a bunch of white dudes yeah it's not going to mean that soon and it's exciting i feel like right now we're in kind of well, the this farm, list. farm yeah. leagues. I don't know if I'm using baseball ter- terms right, but like everybody we're watching is going to be a star. Well, I mean, know? or yeah. already is, but like is really going to be. These are the next generations of important 70s filmmakers. They're here, they're on this list. This is just maybe their first or second film. And hopefully, according to you, they won't go off and make a Disney or a Marvel film yeah. right after. Protect them. Oh, yeah. All right. 
know you're talking about Brian Tyree Henry. Maybe it's worth talking about, I think, your favorite film. Sorry to bother you, Lakeith Sanfield, another standout from Atlanta, just owns it in this Boots Riley film. Tessa Thompson, uh, Danny Glover, who I'm so excited to see Danny Glover in in a film. Uh, Army Hammer. It's a really kind of interesting, loud, splashy director coming on the scene going, boom, here I am. Check me out. Yeah, this might be the film, honestly, out of everything on this list that I would want to make it on to the AFI. Oh, I and I know that it's really risky. I, I know that it's like such a strange film. Mm-hmm. But to me, this film is everything I want a movie to be. Like, it's absolutely intelligent. It's absolutely funny. It's incredibly relatable. You're like watching Lakeith Stanfield kind of truck to his job and pay for his gas in like pennies. Yeah. It's so completely of the now. You know, when I it, when I think about like 2018, it's yeah. a year where like, here I go getting political. But this is a year where I think for the first time I'm seeing people take the ideas that Boots Riley has believed for a, a long time. Seriously, Boots Riley is a really admitted socialist. I, I say admitted like it's a bad thing. He's a yeah. proud socialist. He believes in his ideals. And this is his film that's making an economic statement about what it is to be in a time of such inequality in America. Yeah. And like he's putting that into a film. It's in the DNA baked all the way up and down and not just layered on like, oh, it's sort of about this. No, it is It is about this. Capital letters. About that. But also – Amazing. Well, actually, let's hear Boots Riley talk about that. You, you actually wrote this screenplay back in 2012. Obviously, we were in a different political time then. Uh, did you have to make adjustments to the current political environment before this film uh, made it to the screen? Yeah, so I wrote this, I, I finished writing it in 2012, and we published it as a screenplay in 2014. All of these things, the, all the story was there. It was, it was just as relevant then. Unfortunately, it was relevant 20, 40 years ago, mm-hmm. and will be relevant in 10 years. Hopefully, we'll make it irrelevant at some point. It's so relevant that in our 2014 version, we had a line that Omari Hardwick's character, which is just Mr. Blank, mm-hmm. um, that his character said, which was, and there's a company there called Worry Free that's a slave labor company. And uh, he says, worry free is making America great again. Yes. And that was in the 2014 version. We had to take it out because the real world had made my screenplay too on the nose. Well, it, it feels to me like this film has elements of what I love about Michel Gondry and uh, Wes Anderson. It's this fantastical world that feels so unique to this director. No one else could tell the story this way. It reminded me of a movie that I loved when I grew up uh, called Hollywood Shuffle. Robert Townsend made this movie about being a black actor in Hollywood at the time of the height of Eddie Murphy and what it took to kind of sell yourself out to succeed in this world and what you were willing to give over to it and what you weren't. I don't think I even got all those themes when I was young. I just thought it was a really funny movie and it was weird and and bizarre. And this kind of feels like, you know, this is someone who is selling themselves out to make it in the world, you know, and, and, and do you lose yourself in that process? And I, and yeah, I just, I really was taken aback by this film. And there are people out there that do not like this film, though, too. And That might be one case where your opinion is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> when you have a movie like this, I'm in the mindset of I want to make TV and I want to make films that I think split people in halves. Like, I think it's okay to hate something like this because it's harder to say, oh, I hated 
A Star is Born, right? A Star is Born, it, 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 you know, it's a straight down the line movie. I think it's interesting because when you engage people on a level like this, when you're making bold choices, when you're doing things that people don't understand, when you are challenging them and people just don't like it, I feel like that means it's working too. I don't think that good art needs to just be universally accepted. And I think we know, based on what we hear in every episode of our show, that a lot of these movies on the list were kind of reviled when they first came out. People did not like them. They were, you know, a lot of times retroactively liked, you know, whether that's Citizen Kane or Wizard of Oz. So I do feel like when these big movies come, it's important to kind of also look at their criticism because it almost means like, it's too different. Get it away from me. It's too different. It's true. I mean, I actually, to the point, like I kind of looked through the AFI list to see what were the films that scored below like an 85, the equivalent Mm -hmm. of like an 85 on Rotten Tomatoes. There's a fair amount. Um, Yankee Doodle Dandy, which we haven't gotten to yet. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? MASH, In the Heat of the Night and French Connection scored a little low. All the President's Men, Sound of Music, Intolerance, The Sixth Sense, of course. Wow. West Side Story, Butch Cast and the Sundance Kid, Sophie's Choice, Rocky. Titanic in Nashville. <laughs> you know, these are all films that didn't have like straight above 85. You know, right. they weren't 90s. They no. were mixed. I mean, like my definition of art, if I had to have one, and I'm going to keep it as like vague as possible, is you look at something, a painting, and do you feel something? Is something rippling off of it? What is it? Like, does it make you happy, angry, sad, something, something? If there is a reaction to there, and it is, and if an artist created something that gives you a reaction to me, that is art. Yeah. That's the simplest definition I can have for it. Well, I think a lot of films on this list, the remainder too, are films that people really talk about, the endings and and talking about like what did you get from it and and how it is different for so many people. Exactly. Um, and like I mean for me like if we're coming to it at the end of the day for sorry to bother you, which is the film here that I can imagine like me of the future. Like if I was mm-hmm. a kid, if I was like 18, 19, learning about films in the year 2050, what is the film from this year that I'd be like, oh my God, I love cinema because this movie existed? Right. I think Sorry to Bother You for me would be like the film on the list where I would say that is what cinema can do. You know, this may be the beginning of Boots Riley's career of making these films, the same way that the Black Panther sets off a trend in film, uh, Spider-Man, Into the Spider-Verse. All these movies now push a ball down a hill that's already been pushed a little bit before them. And in 10 years, we're going to see and then look back and go, is that the movie that started it all? I mean, I think to me, part of the bigger prize will be like a bazillion Boots Rally films in the future if he wants to. I, I don't really, this almost feels like a film where he put in everything he had to say. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he even was going to like want to make another film or if he's going to be like, no, I'll just go back to making music. I don't I don't know. Right. Like, and that's interesting to me. Because he isn't a young director. He's not like a guy out of like CalArts like two years ago. You know, he's a, he's a guy oh, who had his own life. Yeah. Like he has totally, he's just also a screenplay genius. At least though, Lakeith Stanfield, who's been probably tied for my top favorite actor for five years. Wow. Like him and Michael Shannon. They're just my good, my dudes. But where has he even been working in the last five years? I feel in like the tiniest bits and nobody's okay. been appreciating him. So at least he gets to be the star role that I feel like he's always deserved or he is everything. He is everything in this. Are you doing all right? Yeah, I'm doing good. How are you doing? Fantastic. Fantastic. I hope you have a good day. Hope you have a better week. Mm, I hope your month is full of successful days and a lot of great ventures. I hope you just come up, brother. I hope your whole fucking year is spectacular. Oh, you hope my year is spectacular? Yeah. You got something you want to say to me? You got something you want to say? You smell great. You smell great. What is that? Burberry. What you got on? Mm, I forgot. Smells expensive. It's just deodorant. Okay. Yeah. Good. We good. smelling good. We smelling, smelling good brothers yeah. out here. You, you are awesome, man, and I appreciate yeah. you. Yeah, hope you find yourself, Yeah, too. we should go out. Get drinks. Wanna get drinks? Yeah. Mm, I'll yeah. get drinks, too. 
Three. Three. Four. Five. Five. Six. Seven. Eight. Nine. Ten. All of them. On me. It's on me. No, it's on me it's now. On you? Yeah, it's oh, on me now. On you. Yeah, it's yeah. on me. That moment when he is rapping at Army Hammer's party is an everything oh. moment where an actor is doing everything. Every. I agree. Emotion, that is right one of then. my favorite scenes. I mean, that that is when I think about the film. I think about that scene. You know, Amy, we're we're more than halfway through the list at this point. And it's interesting that our conversation is not as dismissive as it was with the blockbusters. It oh was God, easier. I'm so happy. I know. It was easier <laughs> to say, well, we're not gonna even talk about that movie. That will never even get on the list, you know. Um but Goodbye to you, Hotel Transylvania three. <laughs> but here, these are the films that I think we both respond to, and they're the films that sometimes people don't get a chance to see. I think one of the digs is, you know, oftentimes the best reviewed films are the films that are more art house films. And it's it's they're kind of put there because someone has determined it's not a mainstream movie, but I do think that these movies touch on mainstream themes. You know, uh, you know, for yeah. me, You Were Never Really Here is Taken to a certain degree. And I know I've talked about Taken a lot, but Taken is one of these films that I think took on in popular culture, you know, the John Wick phenomena, one person versus the world, which is something that we can go back to, you know, Charles Bronson and Death Wish and then even go back to, you know, John Wayne and Westerns. You know, and this movie adds this darkness to this and Joaquin Phoenix we've already talked about how fantastic he is you know this is just uh, again uh, a spin on a genre that we're really familiar with and showing the the uncinematic qualities of a very cinematic genre you know the guy who's breaking everyone's arms and throwing them into a wall and uh, I just love this movie again a very quiet small film but an action film kind of I think on the same level as Destroyer this year Destroyer not in this top 20, but uh, very similar themes on both Yeah, of I mean, to be honest, I preferred Destroyer. Really? Uh, yeah, I did. And, and here's so here's why. is You Were Never Here does the thing that just drives me a little bit insane. Okay. Where suddenly there's the innocent blonde girl child and everything is about that. Right. You know, like rescuing her. And to the film's credit, you know, she's also like a little screwed up in the head and I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. But there was something in here that just felt a little bit like a riff on Taxi Driver that I wasn't totally into. Do you know the kind yeah. of like hero complex? In a year where we talk a lot about like giving female directors the chance to have their budgets, their mics to do the, the films they want to do. I think it's interesting that so many of the female filmmakers who had that mic this year chose to do films that aren't considered like quote unquote like women's pictures. Right. You know, you were never really here is not a woman's picture. Destroyer is not a woman's picture. They were like, cool, we want to do the kind of gritty, tough, interesting 70s style films that we like. And we're not going to be relegated to this like ghetto of I'm a woman torn between like an interior decorator and a cupcake man. Yeah. I mean, Do you think that is an active choice? I don't know. I think these women are also just really interesting and they have interesting stories to tell. Like I would rather prefer condensing myself that it's about women with really interesting stories to tell than it is women trying to sort of blend into what men will find acceptable to green light. Mm-hmm. But I don't really know. That's sort of a thing happening behind the scenes. Like I do feel like with Kusama and Destroyer, she's a woman who I think felt very attacked by the industry for having like a couple high profile flops, you know, that right. she like felt like were studios taking things out of her control, Aeon Flux and then Jennifer's Body. So I love that this is a woman who's been working in the Hollywood system for a long time, making a film about what it's like to be a woman where everybody has an opinion on everything that you've done wrong. Wow, and kind of I did not realize that she made those movies. What a blessedness 
what a piece is mine. Lean. Um, well, you, you talked a little bit about um, Taxi Driver, and I want to bring it to First Reform, the number one movie on this list. This movie blew me away. I had just seen it recently. It flew under the radar for me. I know I mentioned that a little bit earlier. Uh, it's Ethan Hawke. And I think this movie shares a lot of DNA with Taxi Driver, so much so that it's written and directed by the person who wrote Taxi Driver. I did not know what this movie was going to be about. I thought it was maybe a period piece. And I was absolutely jaw-dropped throughout the entire film, just going, wow, now it's going here, now it's going here. It's so it's slow in parts, and they really take their time with these great two-person scenes. It almost feels play-like and where it culminates to and the things that happen in the film that are unlike the rest of the film. I mean, there's a, a sequence where literally the the walls melt away and our two main characters are flying over the world. And the ending is open to interpretation as well. I don't want to spoil the ending because I feel like not many people have seen this film and I want you to see it. And I don't want to spoil it too much because I think the less you know, the better it is. But um, knowing your thoughts on Taxi Driver, I wanted to hear your thoughts on First Reform. Yeah, I mean, there's a, kind of an argument to me that First Reformed is the film Paul Schrader maybe has always wanted to make his entire life. Right. You know, I don't know how much we talked about Paul Schrader's background in the Taxi Driver episode, but he's a guy who grew up not being allowed to watch films. He grew up really religious. He was a door-to-door kid who would, like, knock on people's doors and be like, have you heard of the good word of, of Christ? You know, that's his world. He didn't watch his first film until he was 19, 20, 21 is wow. when he really got into what a movie was. He didn't know what they were before then. The fact that he has always kept this little piece of him, you know, First Reformed is a film that is very much wrestling with like faith and principles, being a good person in a modern world, being a good person when you look around and think the world is going to collapse. Hey, how, how old are you, Reverend? I'm 46. Uh, 33. That's, that's how old our child will be in 2050. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's... That's two years older than I am right now. Mm-hmm. You'll be 81. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know, you know the world will be like in, in 2050. Mm. Hard to imagine. Yeah, you think? <laughs> I mean, Reverend, uh, the, the world is, is changing so fast. I mean, I'm a, I'm a dark, depressing person a lot of the time. And so, you know, I've spent most of 2018 and now 19 mm-hmm. uh, thinking about the world ending in yeah. my lifetime. And First Reformed is a movie that looks at that head on. And that, to me, makes it feel incredibly relevant. Well, I mean, you take what Taxi Driver is doing, looking at the city kind of turning into a cesspool of sex and violence. Um, and this is saying... All right, now we've kind of figured out our world, but the actual world is turning into a cesspool. And that, as our main character is experiencing some physical ailments that, you know, he's kind of also falling apart as the world as he kind of jumps into this cause. It's, yeah, I don't want to say too much because I think it's it's worthy of watching. And I do think out of the films that we've been talking about, it is something I want to put on the side and say to you, I think I would talk about this along with sorry to bother you as movies that may belong on this list because they're saying something, they're well acted, they feel kind of timeless in a way. You might look back on it in in a handful of years and go, wow, that was a 
pretty powerful film. Yeah, I mean, I wonder, like, in 2050, when we're eating jellyfish to survive and we're killing each other over water, if, like, we'll watch First Reformed and be like, yep, that was the most important movie of that year by far. Because that is a movie. Oh, hi. I'm sorry. Did I just bum you out? I'm sorry. No. Sorry, yeah, no. this is what I do. No, but no, I, I totally, I, I'm on your same page. It, it is a depressing movie. And, and as we're in this top 10, these are all films that are depressing. Annihilation to me is another one of these films that is so beautifully done. It's taking sci-fi, it's creating, you know, what sci-fi does, I think, talking about the world and the environment and this kind of uh, the shimmer that is eating away at our world. I mean, it's destroying our world. It's another one about the ecology of the world kind of eating us alive. I also think, like I said to you in the beginning, that this movie is speaking to a deeper issue of depression. You know, and 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 how we all deal with depression. You know, first reform just dealing with that as well. But I feel like each character that goes into the shimmer is representing a different type of grief. Uh, you know, whether it's the grief of being told that you don't have much time to live, if it's the grief of you know someone close to you dying. You know, it's there is just normal depression in there. These characters are all flawed, and they're going on a suicide mission to kind of figure this out. You want to hear my hot take on what the end is about? Give me your hot take. Give me your shimmery take. Uh, Again, not to spoil this movie, because a lot of these movies are worth, if you have not seen it, it's worth you watching it. I will just say that I believe at the end of the film, she literally is wrestling with a copy of herself. But I think, to me, that is a struggle that people who are clinically depressed have. Like, you're fighting with yourself to be free of yourself. And... In a many respects, I find the end to be very triumphant because she breaks free of herself in this, like where she's been keeping herself locked away. I feel like the whole film is a beautiful metaphor for how the weight that we feel under depression, the way that we move, the way that time passes without us knowing what day it is or what week it is. It It is capturing all these things, but told in a, a beautiful science fiction way that it, it also works perfectly as a... A sci-fi story. It work. It works great, and you can watch it on one level or the other, and and take from it what you will. Yeah, I mean, I think the DNA that it definitely shares with First Reformed is these are films that don't have much hope in them, mm-hmm. and I think that's fascinating. I'm really fascinated by the idea of what if we made movies where the arc isn't how will we save the day, but just sort of midway through we probably can't. So what happens? If how do we, we can't deal save with the it? Day? Yeah. Hey, yeah. How do we deal with a film that's not going to end with? You have the Avengers figuring out how to make everybody happy and Tony Stark having a quip and walking off into his tower. And and so... Tony's lost, Amy, right now. He's lost on a rock with Nebula. Oh, yeah. I'm sure that's how it's going to be forever. I'm sure that's how it goes. But if, if I had a quibble with Annihilation, which I sort of feel bad having tiny quibbles, it's just that there are so many interesting ideas in here that I kind of wanted more of. Like mm-hmm. Tessa Thompson's character. What happens to her happens so fast. I'm like, oh, give yeah. me more of that. Give me more of that. It was so strange hearing... Shepherd's voice in the mouth of that creature last night. I think as she was dying, part of her mind became part of the creature that was killing her. Imagine dying frightened and in pain and having that as the only part of you which survives. I wouldn't like that at all. Ventress wants to face it. You want to fight it. But I don't think I want either of those things. 
But the, the degradation's really interesting, you know, and then the inventions, like, of course, Screamy Bear. Yeah. Uh, oh, my God. So Ooh, scary. scary. I mean, Screamy Bear might be one of the best uh, concoctions that we've come up with this year. I think that Alex Garland is one of these directors who will have a film on this list, uh, the AFI list. I don't know which one it will be. I mean, Annihilation, to me, is another one of these sleeper films. Uh, a lot of these films on this list, they're getting acclaimed, they're being talked about. These movies are being talked about, but in a much lower volume. And I, and I, and I found them to be the mo more challenging films. I guess the, the loudest of all of them in this kind of quietly spoken about film would be Hereditary, another deeply depressing film uh, that I said fucked me up, but is also like inventive and crazy. I mean, what did you think of Hereditary? I mean, I saw this at midnight at last year's Sundance because okay. it was towards the end of Sundance. And your Sundance goes on for 11 days and you sort mm -hmm. of lose your mind. And I love that about it. Uh, it, everybody's like, go see this. So all the critics who hadn't seen it, we all went to a midnight showing with Oof. like a flask of whiskey and lost our minds. Yeah. Um, I really, really love the first two thirds of Hereditary. I was a little bit sort of like, no, 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 no. Go back to the plot that I thought you were heading to yes. at the beginning because that was all you needed. And you, you sort of have Anne Dowd show up and everybody's like, oh, well, it's an Anne Dowd character. We know what happens right. now. Tony Collette though, oh my God. Okay, so fine. Then say what you want to say then. Hey, Dad. I don't want to say anything. I've tried saying Okay, things. so try again. Release yourself. Oh, release you, you mean? Yeah, fine. Release me. Just say it. Just fucking say it. Don't you swear at me, you little shit. Don't you ever raise your voice at me. I am your mother. Do you understand? All I do is worry and slave and defend you. And all I get back is that fucking face on your face. Also, Millie Shapiro as the daughter. The twist that happens with the daughter is probably top 10 favorite moments in film this year. For like, me. it just, you're like, what? what? Huh? Woo? Like, like, did I, I make that up? Did yeah. it, in the reaction and everything? Yeah. I was waiting for you to reset the table. Like, no, that didn't happen. But no, it happens. Yeah, it's and, a film with consequence. Wow. Wow. That and, and that, and yes, I think it goes, I mean, it's dealing with grief. Another film dealing with grief. Uh, all these movies dealing with grief. Yeah. The number one thing I've had directors tell me this year is my film's about trauma. Yeah. Just, so, and it's like, my God, what happened to all of us? We are traumatized well, I right mean, now. I think if we talk about like the idea that, you know, you know, artists are the, the people who are the liberals, right? If you go in that general sense, you know, these movies are all being made under... Hold on, I'm Clint Eastwood, and I have a problem with that. <laughs> right, I'm sorry, Mr. Mule. <laughs> um, but, if we, but if we're talking about this, like, we are, I think, at a point, if you are a liberal-leaning, uh, progressive person, that the administration that comes in, you're feeling oppressed by it. And these films, I think, are the first films that are coming out of the Trump era because they are being fueled by that. I think you can't... You can't separate the two. And all of these films are about climate change and trauma and grief. And these are the things that we were going through right after the election. And these are the things that these films were either being made on the tail end of or right in the middle of. And I think it's worth noting. I do think it's worth noting. I mean, is it weird to say that I find hope in films with no hope? Because to me, it at least feels like, all right, we're all on the same table now. Can we mm -hmm. have a real conversation about what's happening? I don't know if I felt that way at the end of Hereditary because I did like I I'm okay for what they did in the third act. I don't mind it. I think it was an interesting smaller movie before that. 
you know, it becomes a little poltergeisty, a little horror-y. It didn't need that. I think it was rich enough and smart enough. It didn't need the last act I, to go the way that it did. I, I, I could see the argument for that. In the continuing of turning the screw of what the fuck, it, it was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Because that movie, once that twist happens, you're like, well, I don't know what to expect, so... Take me. Okay, like, the house is not a house? What is it? Okay, great. Like, you know. Exactly. And I think Ari Aster is a major talent. I mean, oh, part of yeah. why I stay very on top of, like, what's happening in horror film is because that's where our major talents are coming from right now. Mm-hmm. Because it's the easiest film to get greenlit if you only have $500,000, a million dollars, is, I- you know, a horror film. Because the, there's this kind of idea that, well, a teen on the couch will hit a random iTunes horror right. film. And I believe that. So, like, horror film is where... People who want to have something to say can say it in a heightened, crazy, fun way and get it made and get it seen. And I just, I, I'm obsessed with horror for that reason, even though I don't like gore and I get scared really easy. All right, everybody, let's take a brief break in this breakdown of the best reviewed films to talk about a brand new podcast, which might be your favorite new podcast. It's called Voyage to the Stars. Let me tell you about this. If you like sci-fi, if you like, uh, a fictionalized, episodic show with very funny people. You're going to love Voyage to the Stars. It stars Felicia Day, Colton Dunn, Janet Varney. And here's the premise. It's basically a sci-fi sitcom for your ears, okay? They have this great script, and then they hand it to a bunch of funny people from TV shows like The Good Place, and just let them improvise. Uh, You have people on this show that are coming in and creating a unique show that you would never get anywhere else because the budget is completely unlimited. All right, that's the coolest part about this. Very rarely do you get to do a comedy sci-fi show because it's just too damn costly. I'm so so sorry. We can't afford more stars. We We don't need more twinkling stars in the sky. (laughs) Well, you don't have to make a choice. It's a podcast. You can use your imagination. And you Colton Dunn. Oh, Colton Dunn. So great from Superstore. Uh, Felicia Day, who you know from her many shows like Mystery Science Theater 3000 and The Guild. Steve Berg, who is one of the standout guys at Second City. Uh, And Janet Varney. She's got podcast glory. The JV Club is so, so good. And she's also on The Legend of Korra. And what's the premise of this show, me? Well, a bunch of weirdos get on an alien spaceship. That happens. Weirdos, spaceships, it happens. But then they wind up on the wrong side of the universe. How are they going to get home? How are they going to get home being a bunch of weirdos? We're not going to tell you. You got to listen to Voyage <laughs> of the Stars. Get in your podcast app and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You're going to love it. Check out Voyage to the Stars. Type it in right now. So here's the deal, people. We sometimes accrue credit card debt, and we know that you get caught in this cycle where it's so hard to pay it off. And I know that when I had terrible debt, I was just paying off a little chunk at a time. And then I heard about this thing that was amazing. I was able to consolidate all my multiple credit card payments down to one payment at a lower rate. And now the future is here with Lightstream. Lightstream does the same exact thing. You can refinance your credit card balances with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. Now you can get a loan as low as 6.14 APR with auto pay, okay? If the rate is fixed, it will never go up. There are zero fees. You can apply online in minutes. It's so easy. You don't even need to leave your house. You can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. And I know for people out there that are carrying the weight of all of this, multiple cards you're probably paying, exorbitant interest. Look at the interest you're paying. Lightstream is here to help you out, okay? If you want to even save more, we're going to give you an additional interest rate discount, okay? We're going to give you an additional one. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash unspooled. That's lightstream.com slash unspooled. Um, And what you're going to do, subject to credit approval, the rate includes 
a 0.50% auto pay discount. It's pretty good. Okay, that's you're gonna get an auto pay discount if you just set it up on auto pay. You're gonna get a discounted rate. So go to Lightstream L I G H T S T R E A M dot com slash unspooled. Okay, for more information. All right, so now we're down to our final four, uh, and through no. Uh, real reason, because I think so far we've kind of put First Reformed on the side. I think we've put uh, Sorry to Bother You on the side. Now we're down to the favorite, Eighth Grade, Beale Street, and Black Klansman. And, you know, in many respects, I think people are viewing this as like Spike Lee's triumphant return, although he's been making movies and and very different films. You know, I think the Spike Lee that made Do the Right Thing, you know, has grown and morphed and kind of made very mainstream movies like Inside Man and then made uh, films that are tackling things that I think were before their time, like Bamboozled. But then going to this film, which feels so of the moment, going to what we were talking about, so of the time that we're living in. However... If I'm to be totally honest, I feel the film is a little bit muddy. I think there's great performances in it. I think the story is really captivating. But tonally, I found it to shift in ways where I was like, well, is this supposed to be this or is this supposed to be this? And then the end makes me feel like this. And so I'm mixed on it. I, I, I didn't not like it. I just felt that it wasn't as perfect as people wanted it to be because I think it is saying something that is the most topical probably of all these films. I will say that Black Klansman is bad. Okay. And and I will say that really having the highest hopes for Black Klansman. I mean, we did an episode of The Canon. The Canon used to try to debate, like, what was the film of the year? Right. And my pick um, in the year of Chirac was Chirac. I loved his last film, Chirac. I thought it was incredibly smart and powerful and intelligent about what to do with about the world. I thought Tayana Paris... Um, is phenomenal. You know, Tiana Paris, she's amazing. She shows up in a movie we're going to get to in a second, Beale Street Could Talk. I thought she was such a discovery. I thought the movie was funny and witty and um, just powerful as all get out. And I thought Black Klansman was a total mess, honestly, because I un- I understand why. I really, I really understand, like, that when you're trying to talk about what do we do with race relations in America in 2018? I mean, my God, and even since, like, Black Klansmen came out, the number of people who've, like, been exposed for doing blackface, my God. Yeah. Like, it's unreal. Basically, everybody elected in Virginia. Yeah, exactly. And and so we're in a moment where, like, on the one hand, it's optimistic that we're having these conversations. We want there to be optimism in the world. People are angry. People are fighting. We are talking about it. It is awesome. And on the other hand, my God, it's even worse Every day it feels like it's even worse. And so I feel like Spike Lee was stuck in this position where he was making a film that's like optimistic and pessimistic at the same time. And, you know, the truth of what it feels like to be alive right now is in the middle. But instead of doing that, I think he made a film that was like optimistic in one scene and pessimistic in one scene and cutting back and forth, sometimes in the same like montage going back and forth. And it felt like a film that couldn't quite just say what it wanted to say. It was just saying the range of everything that is. Am I wrong in saying that I feel like this was a film that could have been made anytime because it it happened in the past, 
but because it was made now, it had to hold more water as an important film. It's a funny story. I mean, at the root of it, it is a funny, weird thing that happened. And, you know, uh, I, I think Topher Grace did an amazing job as David Duke in that film. Um, I can't believe David Duke is still a public figure, both in our movies and yeah. on Twitter. I mean, it's insane. And I, and I think... He was, like, know, discredited when I was a baby. I know. <laughs> but, but I do feel like wrestling with what's going on in culture, it had to kind of walk both sides and that's that's what muddled it for me it, it, especially the scene at the end when they you know not the scene when they're in his apartment but the scene when they're all out at the diner and they bust that guy it's there there's a sort of like yeah it's like high five wait we take it back yeah high five wait we take it back i mean the movie has four different endings yeah let me tell you both something i've been keeping you people in line in this city for years what i did to your girl that night i could do to any of you anytime any place that's my prerogative i could even bust a cap in your black ass if i feel like it nothing will be done about it i wish it too you've been blown up instead of good white folks get it oh I do get it. Do you get it, Patrice? Mm, Yeah, I totally and completely get it. Jimmy, did you get it? Oh, yes, I got it. Flip, did you get it? Oh, yeah, I got it. Chief, did you get it? Oh, I really, really get it. Ah! You're under arrest. What? Let alone the part where he's, like, cutting back and forth between the comedy of the KKK rally and the tragedy of the rally that's talking about, you know, actual people who have been lynched. Like, he's chopping between those two. He's chopping between endings. I mean, I think this might be one of his worst made films. Can start. I mean, you watch the way, like, he cuts everywhere when somebody walks into a room. The camera just doesn't know what it wants to say. The camera's everywhere in this without being erratically, excitingly everywhere. It's just sort of, I don't know, camera here. It, It feels very just like cobbled together like nobody's at the reins of this film and also i think the most emotional point for a lot of people leaving the movie was that montage at the end of the real world things and if in a fiction film your most powerful part is basically a documentary i i I have some issues with that too yeah I, i feel like people really leave the theater feeling really emotional and i think that that ending is a little bit manipulative Let's get into Barry Jenkins' new film. I know we're not talking about last year, but Moonlight to me is a film that I could see on the AFI top 100 list in a handful of years. I loved Moonlight. I I think Moonlight is a pretty perfect film. Uh, I just, I love that movie. So I had high expectations uh, coming into Beale Street. Um, I will say that I don't feel exactly the same way about Beale Street. I, I think it is incredibly beautiful and uh, and really well acted. It just, I don't know if it missed a little bit of a narrative thrust for me or it, it maybe was too slowly paced. I don't know. I think, and I feel kind of bad saying this because I've been really invested in Barry Jenkins ever since Medicine for Melancholy, a film that I think he made by like selling his car and his job at Banana Republic back when he was living in Oakland. I mean, basically, we've had so many films come out of Oakland this year that we've been talking yeah. about, you know, like Blind Spotting, Sorry to Bother You. It's been a great year for Oakland. He was doing the Oakland film, you know, 10 years ago. It's yeah. like watching him, you're sort of seeing the future come through him. Like, Beale Street, I thought, was too beautiful, if I'm going to be you honest. You know, that's interesting. I thought there was something sort of airless and inhuman about how gorgeous it was, which I feel bad saying out loud even as I'm saying it, but it was so over-the-toply lush that I almost felt like it didn't exist in the same world as the story it was telling. It's here almost it is like that telling movie... a true, yeah, not a true story, but here it is telling 
as a story of things that can happen to people, you know, a really kind of lived in story about small tragedies that don't get covered. And I couldn't quite reconcile it with just this ripeness, this beauty, this soundtrack, this everything. And here's where I'm going to be the biggest asshole on the planet. But I didn't think his leading lady, Kiki Lane, was up to the film. Mm. I know we're not talking about Roma, but like Yelizia Aparicio comes out of nowhere, gets an Oscar nomination, is great in that film. Nobody talks about Kiki Lane in Beale Street. And I feel like if she was good, we would be talking about it and we aren't. It's brutal. And I'm not saying I think she's a bad actress. I'm interested in her. I want to see she's in a bunch of films at Sundance. I want to see where she goes. Absolutely. But maybe something just wasn't a right fit in this. Well, I like what you're saying about the idea that a movie is so beautiful that it distracts from everything else. I mean, because when I think about the movie, I just think about how beautiful it was. And I, and I, and I'm, and just like, wow, I've never seen anything like that. So. Yeah. And I'm not saying that beauty is bad. And I love that Jenkins like reaches for beauty. I just think that this is a moment where the beauty doesn't totally dovetail with the, the film itself and the intention of the film. Right. Yeah. It's, and, and yet all of that said, I mean, there are some scenes in Beale Street that I love so much beyond the movie that I want to like pop them out, you know? Yeah. What's going on? This is a sacrament, and no, I ain't lost my mind. We are drinking to new life. Tish gonna have Fonny's baby. Brian Tyree Henry showing up in this film in his, like, really powerful scene. Amazing. Regina King, I have loved Regina King for such a long time. And then to have her here in her scene where she goes to Cuba, to me, that transcends anything in the movie. Like, her scene in Cuba is better than anything with the young couple. Well, I wonder if that's why this movie is getting so much positive attention, because these scenes become... What we're remembering, I think you know, we're talking about Bohemian Rhapsody. You know, I think people just really respond to Rami Malek a lot more than that. You know, I think that 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 is what people are connecting to, and sometimes a performance can elevate a film. I think that Barry Jenkins will almost certainly make much much better films than Beale Street in the future. All right, so our final two, the favorite in eighth grade. Which one do you want to talk about first? Let's talk about eighth grade. I mean, my God, like this film felt like, I keep using Time Machine as like a descriptor here, but I'm like, oh God, if I was in eighth grade right now, this feels like I would be watching my life. Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting to note that like in a time where you do talk a lot about like representation and who should be telling what story, to me, one of the best stories I've ever seen about what it's like to be a young female came from a young man. And so I'm glad that we are keeping the door open for everybody to tell everybody's stories. I think I want to make really special note of that, that like he did a great job. And and he did an astonishing job, honestly. It's like, did was he spying on me? Was he spying on right. like my friends? Like, how did he do that? Well, I think also, you know, what I'm always amazed at is not only is he a first-time feature director, because he's actually directed some stand-up specials that I loved. Uh, he directed a Gerard Carmichael special that is so beautifully shot, and also Chris Rock's uh, latest special he directed. He's just got a great style. And I know it's like, well, what is it to direct a stand-up special? Watch them. They're different. He captures a vibe and a mood for both of those people that I think is more engaging and more interesting than most of the stand-up specials that you're seeing, which is a very stagnant shot. He's doing something artistic there. Oh, that's so interesting. I, I don't know much about directing stand-up. I want to learn that. I think that Bo, from knowing him, from talking with him, is a very thoughtful person. And casting Elsie Fisher, 
He really worked with her. And this is from everything that I've read online. And it was a very quiet film and allowed these performances to blossom. So it did feel like someone was spying on her. And this is Elsie Fisher kind of talking about her process and how it was working with Bo. I mean, I, you do you do like a really good, he does a really good job of writing it. Um, and part of it was like not letting me overread the script. And I would get the lines for the day on the day of to keep it fresh in my mind. Um, and it's it's just really it's how like people talk. Yeah. It's, it's so yeah. you write with all the extra words in there. Yeah, and yeah. It's, yeah, the ums and the ahs and the likes, and really just telling her, you know. You can't make a mistake. You know, the, the the only mistake you could make is is being, you know, prodigiously articulate, which isn't a problem for you know. It, it, it's. I told her I didn't say a complete sentence until I was 24. You know, this is about someone struggling to articulate themselves. When you're that age, you don't know how to string words together. So if you stumble or you forget a line or you go with it, she's she's constantly not knowing what to say. She's constantly forgetting the lines she had in her mind when she's approaching this boy across the hallway. You know. I think this movie is. Beautiful. I was expecting it to be great, and I walked out even more thoroughly impressed. Like, you walk out going, Bo Burnham is going to make great films. Like, he is a great filmmaker. And I think he probably surprised a lot of people, and I think he took a subject that people were surprised that he was tackling and told it through his own perspective, but also created a fully rich character. And one of the people that I feel like doesn't get enough play in this film is the father. I think the father is fantastic. It's an understated performance. I think when mom left, I was really scared. I was really, really scared. I I was scared you were gonna be okay. And then you started to get older and you got I don't know, you took your first steps and you said your first words and you made your first friend. All the things I thought I was gonna have to uh, teach you, how to be nice, how to uh, share, how to care about other people's feelings. You just started doing that on your own. I stopped being scared about whether you were gonna be okay a long time ago. Everything works in that film for me. It's true. And you know what makes me feel really optimistic about the film is just the universal audience love. This is so high on the critics list. Being a critic and seeing sort of for years like how Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes kind of shake out when it is a ton of dudes is I'm kind of used to the idea that like a film that is about women stories Mm -hmm. does get like some points knocked off just because it's not quite as relatable you know has to struggle a little bit harder to get like the score it might if it was a dude and that's just i mean it's just it just is what it is but like i'm changing my mind in this year to see like people really bring themselves to eighth grade yeah has been beautiful Well, I mean, if you want to talk about great performances and you look at this list, they're so diverse, but let's look at the second one, The Favorite. It, it This is a movie that is so female-fronted, again, uh, directed by a man, but wow, what a funny, great twist on a period drama that, I mean, it's not a drama, it, it is a comedy. It, it is, I just love this movie. I mean, I, I, I'm, I... 
love to this movie. I mean, it is brutal. Like, Yorgos Lanthimos is completely my tempo, you know, because mm-hmm. he makes films that are, so, like, about really, really real things that are done completely fraudulent. Right. You know, kind of, like, false sort of, hello, I am telling you exactly how I feel at all times kind of way where it's just, like, confrontational, and I adore that about him. I, his films are always about, like, ideas. And here we have a Yorgos Lanthimos film that's about ideas, but he's actually given his performers really, really rich characters to play where they're not just doing what I love Colin Farrell for doing in The, Lo- in the Lobster, you know, being kind of like robotic and charging through his scenes right. and saying his lines. And he, it's terrific. It is a terrific performance. But here he lets them be even more human. You know, there's more sweat. They're more, they're more full flushed in the face. And I just cannot get over how much I adore this film. Um, I'll just start, even start like with, with, with the actresses with Emma Stone because, yes, I do not love La La Land. But, yes, Emma Stone is terrific in La La Land because she brought this charisma yes. to it. That I think is why people love that movie as much as she did. I think if you had swapped out with anybody else, that film wouldn't have been as good. I am a fan of Emma Stone, but I will be honest and say that I was surprised to see her do this part and do this part so well. It just seemed so out of her wheelhouse, but she fit in so perfectly. And and I know that's maybe a dicky thing to say. Well, she's an actor. She should be able to do it. But it just, it felt so um, different for her and I mean, she kills this character. She kills it. And I think I'm used to seeing it more with Olivia Coleman and Rachel Weisz. Like, I, I see that dynamic uh, in, in other parts they've done. But, wow. I mean, her relationship with the man that she eventually marries. Joe uh, Alwyn. Oh. Who I really like. I think he's Taylor Swift's boyfriend. I get oh, really? confused. Yeah. It, it just really is a wonderfully written, witty, biting... Intelligent. She's so intelligent. Emma Stone, just you look at her face and there are brains there. I am a person of honor, even if my station is not. Even if I were the last one left in this wretched place, I would remain a lady. (laughs) You're pretty when outraged. So my secrets are safe with you? All of them. Good. Even your biggest secret... Abigail. If you forget to load the pellet, the gun fires, makes a sound, but releases no shot. It is a great jape, do you agree? Also, I think the favorite has a ton of heart because, yes, it's about, like, mean, backsnapping, mm-hmm. court drama, intrigue. And yet, when you really look at what Olivia Coleman's character is facing, it's a story about, like, here are two people who are offering you love or mm-hmm. quote-unquote love. They're offering you everything you want. One of them, Rachel Weiss, is offering you the brutal truth. I may not always be nice to you. I may be incredibly rude to you and tell you the things you don't want to hear, but I will be true. And the other one, Emma Stone, is saying to you, I'll give you the love where I just say everything you want to hear. It'll be flattery. I'll take away all your problems. It'll be so- soft and soothing. Right. And which love do you pick? You know, Do you pick the flattering one or do you pick the harsh one? And that's really, I think, what's at the bones of this beyond it just being like wicked and evil and funny. No, well, do you think at the end of that film, you know, who do you think wins? I think Emma Stone faces the idea that for a woman without a lot of options in life, she always loses in a way. You you, You can only win so far. That even in winning, you also lose. She never. She's always going to be somebody's slave. Well, and I, I thought about it too in the sense that you know Rachel Vice by not being there, she wins even though she loses because that longing. What if I made the wrong choice? Will always hang there, and she could never fully commit to Emma Stone's character because because of that. 
Exactly. And I adore Olivia Coleman. Like ever since Peep Show, I just think she's one of the best oh, yeah. actresses that we have. And, you know, the idea that now she is like officially made her gigantic Hollywood debut. She got the Oscar nom. I don't think she'll win. I really wish she'd win. There's an energy where I think Yorgos captured all these people and and broke it down in a way, I, like you said, there's been stilted dialogue. I kind of like that style. I like Killing of a Sacred Deer. Uh, I love Lobster. I just feel like this is Yorgos's Marvel movie. We talk about directors going mainstream. This is a mainstream movie for the for the other films. Yeah, he like, didn't th- write it. This is the first one he didn't like. And and I think it's interesting. I think you can show a, an interesting director doing something a little bit different. I like this transition of doing something where he moves over and does something a lot more accessible and you see how well it works. Yeah, and if there's a moment that really stands out for me, you know, you see Olivia Coleman's queen show up, she's ridiculous, she looks like a badger, she's throwing up cake and it's all over her face. And then you have the scene where she's with Emma Stone and she talks about her rabbits and why she has them. Mm-hmm. And that's Yorgos Lanthimos all of a sudden taking this film and saying, she is a human being. Right. And like making you care about her in a way that you didn't up until then. And I think he's very aware of the effect that he's having on you. Like, laugh at her, laugh at her, and now I will stab you back because he's merciless to the audience. Yeah. And I really respect that too. Oh, so the favorite, I love the favorite. Well, I love the favorite. And I think we are saying that we love pretty much all of these movies on the list. And and the question is just for the sake of the argument, what do you put on the list? And I think we've kind of answered it to a certain degree. I, I think, you know, for me, I I really like First Reformed. And I like First Reform because I also feel like it shares elements of Taxi Driver. If I was to pick one or the other, I feel like Taxi Driver is approaching uh, a concept about our culture and about how people, you know, the idea of like Facebook culture and online culture that First Reformed isn't hitting. But I also feel like First Reformed is is talking about something that may be the next wave of a universal problem. And maybe that's more indicative of where we're going. So there's something about that role. And, and maybe it was because it took me by surprise. I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I'd also say that, you know, I agree with you. Sorry not to bother you is, is a movie that we may look back on and, and go, wow, this is an important film. Yeah. I mean, for months now, we've been playing the, what if we got rid of taxi driver game? Yeah. I could be at peace in a world where like we got rid of taxi driver and put first reformed on. Interesting. I could do yeah. that. But of course, this is not totally all decision. Next right. week, we are having everybody talk to us because, yes. you know, we've like now broken apart our 2018 series into blockbusters, into critical darlings. And now it's people's choice because sometimes the people really get the biggest say. I also want to talk about the films that we haven't talked about next week, the movies that are being nominated for awards that don't fall into the blockbuster or best reviewed ones. I'm talking about movies like Vice and Green Book. I mean, there's a strong argument that Green Book would be the movie that ends up on the AFI Top 100 list. I mean, in the world that we live in, that's not too far-fetched. Would you agree? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we'll get into that next week. This is already a jam-packed episode. Yeah. But at least this is a moment where, like, if you've been listening to this episode in last week's episode and, like, yelling uh, at, at your headphones – just come and call and yell at the, our voice line. Tell us what you think about 2018. Call 747-666-5824. Make your case for the film that you think has the best chance of being on the AFI Top 100. And so far, if you're keeping track, for Amy and I, it's Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Black Panther, Sorry to Bother You, and First Reformed. All right, we will see you next week to hear your picks of 
2018 as we finish our mini-series, The Best of 2018. Once again, Unspooled, we want to say thank you to Cavo, the remote that makes your life simple if you're a person who watches a lot of movies. I am. Paul is. You are too. We love it. Let me tell you why I love Cavo. It's one remote. It's voice activated. It's easy to set up. And you know what? When people come over to your house, they'll know how to turn on your TV. You don't have to be like, oh, and then you have to use this one. And then that one turns on that one. And then this turns on this. And you have to turn on the speakers. No, 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 no. Just one. Get on it, people. Check it out. Shop now just in time for the Oscars and get 40% off your control center with the promo code UNSPOOLED. Control center is available at Cavo, C-A-A-V-O.com and at Best Buy. Promo code UNSPOOL for 40% off for $59.95. You're going to get a Cavo in your house. You're going to be so happy. Control Center by Cavo. One remote that does it all. Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Fake nuts. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I mean, Jazos. <laughs> Ruler of the eighth circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.